Hello, everybody. So today is Wednesday, March 6th, and we are bringing you Block Digest number 162 at block height 565,930. What is going on, everybody? Oh, nothing. Just having a, a live, busy morning, man. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of interesting discussion in the background. Beautiful day. Got a lot to talk about. Should be a good show. How you doing today, Janine? I can't even believe we're not halfway through the season yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's moving along. But uh, we got our one of our favorite... You know, uh, Bitcoiners around. Adam Nopar is with us today. That's great. How are you doing, Nopar? How you been? Hey, guys. Great to be here. I see your popularity exploded lately. Everyone is talking about Janine and Neutrino research. Rick's graphics and Shinobi goes to Stefan. Would you would you call yourself professionals now? No. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I am glad to see, though, that you finally completely solved Bitcoin privacy. And now that there's nothing left to do, uh, you can come back and uh, bullshit on the digest. <laughs> yeah, man, things have really taken off since the last time you were with us and it was the major release. And now it's just like we got Wasabi Wednesdays coming at us and everybody's starting to pick it up. It's just been fantastic to see, man. So it's good to know that everything's working good and you can come back and spend some time with us. Yes, everything is going great here too. <laughs> All right, man. So like I was saying, we got a bunch going on. Shinobi, you want to take us right into this uh, first story? Yeah, I guess uh, let's do that. So um, first up is an update on the Quadriga CX situation, which is, I think, showing that Ernst & Young is pretty much completely incapable of actually fulfilling their role in uh, Quadriga trying to deal with this situation. So they have filed a report. And I, I do want to note that um, yesterday they actually had a court hearing that was live streamed, but they switched up the time last minute. And so I woke up too late to actually see it. So I guess it's pretty much just time to wait for that to actually be put up in an archive. But one of the things that they presented during this hearing was the supposed identification of Quadriga cold storage addresses, which they claimed to pretty much have had no balance since April 2018. And one of them had actually received um, a number of deposits from other exchanges. But 
there's a big problem with this assessment by Ernst and Young. Um, they did an analysis on the balance over time of these addresses and pretty much um, the peak balance of the, these supposed cold stored ad addresses at any time was 2,776 Bitcoin. That is the, the peak balance of this group of addresses that they claim represents Quadriga's cold storage. But if everybody remembers from the first analysis of this on uh, zero nonsense, their purported balances of Bitcoin alone in cold storage was 26,488 Bitcoin. So like, frankly, with the, the balances that they're supposed to actually have possession of in cold storage, there is absolutely no way that this group of addresses identified by Ernst and Young is cold storage. It's literally a tenth of what they are supposed to have in their custody. And the fact that they have not been able to identify any kind of, of blockchain linkages suggesting cold storage behavior with anything even close to that amount, like I think this is just making things more and more certain that they don't have this cold storage. And you know, th there's not really anything here to show whether this is indicative of an exit scam or an undeclared hack. But this is just reinforcing the, the analysis that they, they don't have these coins in their control, whatever the reason. And the, the, the fact that Ernst & Young is trying to kind of put this forward publicly in the media and in the court record, that this is a cold storage setup by Quadriga is just, it's ridiculous. This, this is not even close to what they should actually have in their custody. Sorry, do you have something to say you need? Hello? Hello? <laughs> I think she might just be uh, unmuted and lagged out a little bit. I know she dropped out during that little bit. All right, well, I guess anybody else have uh, anything to pitch in on this? Oh, yeah, just that it's kind of a crazy situation to see them coming up with this research on their cold storage being empty. I mean, uh, that was something where I was yeah, looking at it going, that's a problem. But you're saying that this is not actually really doing their diligence on the chain analysis of actually this is their cold storage. You think this is not really it? No, I mean, this is not. If, they, if this was actually the cold storage that they claim exists with 26,000 Bitcoin in it, they, they, they would have a higher peak balance than 2,700 Bitcoin. Yeah. Like yeah. that's literally off by a factor of 10. It just goes to show like we were talking about before the show, some of this chain analysis stuff really has to be flushed out for what it is. And you know, their ability to actually figure out where these uh, coins are located is not really as easy as they make it seem to be. And I mean, uh, yeah, it sounds like this uh, Ernst & Young needs to figure that out, but everybody's trying to sell it. So there's always gonna be people trying to say that they can identify these addresses. Mm -hmm. But it, it's like, you know, this this is really the the equivalent, not, not in terms of value or the effect that it had on the market, but just in terms of the uncertainty of the situation, this is, pretty much like 
this era's Mount Gox. Like there, there is a whole slew of evidence showing inconsistencies, not actually reinforcing the assertions made by different parties. And I mean, ultimately, like this is just something that's going to take time to actually ascertain what really happened. Like the only thing that can really be definitively asserted at this time is that there is nothing on chain indicating that they actually have the cold storage reserves that they claim to have and not even the firm set up to handle like these proceedings is able to find any evidence suggesting that but they are actually trying to misrepresent what they have found in terms of creating this image of progress Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we'd see something coming out that's, uh, you know, people coming out to say they can identify it. I mean, we saw uh, Kraken say that they're offering a $100,000 reward to try and locate these coins. So there's going to be people saying they can identify it. And uh, I imagine we just should be taking all that with a grain of salt because we understand the way this uh, chain analysis works. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty crazy story. And like you're saying, I mean, it's probably going to have an effect long-term on this where people look at Quadriga and Gox and they talk about, you know, the security of Bitcoin and the way that, you know, it, it reinforces our discussion point of like, hold your own private keys and the way that that really is the way to participate with Bitcoin. But, you know, it does create uh, this, this fear within the market to get involved because they worry they're just going to end up like one of these guys. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Nopar, I'm going to prod you for your first comment. You got anything to say on this one? Oh, so, so, so much, but, but I'm kind of missing the context here. I, I wasn't following the news uh, regarding this uh, exchange hack or CEO dies or something like that. So, can you, can you first uh, just give me a two-minute summary? Well, pretty much they had been having trouble for all of 2018, pretty much. Um, they had banks shut them out and a lot of complications um, handling fiat deposits and withdrawals and then started having trouble towards the end of 2018 with crypto withdrawals and actually pretty much f filed to shut down and get protection from their creditors and claimed that their CEO mysteriously dying in India of medical complications um, put their cold storage beyond their access. But every analysis of their addresses on chain suggests that they don't even have cold storage and that anything that can be tied to a cluster for this exchange is, is just a fraction of the amount of coins that they should have and was regularly interacting with other exchanges. So my first comment would be that nice, the old times are back. <laughs> I was I was missing these 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 dramas like uh, ooh, since two thousand sixteen or seventeen. Not not many things get hacked here, like Bitfinex a little bit, but not like Madgax or Cryptsy or Mintpal uh, or MyBitcoin.com. Uh, this this is what I find interesting. So we are not that, not that into the professional world yet. Then how, how we were 
how I was thinking about it. We are still a wild west. Okay, the other thing is that, oh my God, I, I'm just from day to day, I, I think less and less of chain analysis. I, I, I don't even know if they cannot, cannot make it clear that what happened with this amount of Bitcoins, then, that, then what can they do? Yeah, that's like, that's where it's like, you know, the financial incentive is there. We're going to start seeing people step up to say that they've identified it. But uh, yeah, this one was kind of a ridiculous one. It's like, like Shinobi saying, the total sum didn't even run up to the amount missing and what their cold storage should be. And yeah, it's it's kind of just a, a fancy guesswork. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there paying large contracts for these uh, chain analysis uh, reports, and they just... They follow these reports and act like it's truth without really uh, looking into the real physical evidence within the within the actual chain. But don't, but don't worry, guys. Coinbase is coming to save us all. They are going. They just bought Neutrino, and they are going to 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 bring the chain analysis science to a new level. So we have to do this guesswork anymore yeah honestly i think i think this is a case where there is actually some merit to it like the the first person to do an analysis sourced a large number of deposit addresses and then actually had people providing them confirm with private account information they were legitimate and use that to construct a cluster so i mean i think like again it's it's all probabilistic with margins for error but i think if there are any cases that it's going to have some degree of accuracy this is one of them like there was a sizable amount of legitimate metadata used to actually construct the wallet cluster and it's showing that they are pretty much operating on fractional reserve yeah that seems to be the scary part all right man you want to take us into the next one yep alrighty so just a quick update actually uh, so blockstream.info has gone through another update and you know this is really just another step towards being one of the best block explorers out there they now have information regarding unconfirmed transactions uh, and mempool data, including the estimate for number of blocks to confirm, uh, the mempool depth display, so how far down data-wise in terms of fees it is in the mempool, ratings on privacy. So they're, I think, kind of taking a bit of a lead from OXT ran by Samurai there. Uh, warnings for fees being overpaid and even uh, for legacy transactions, a estimate of how much you could actually save in fees by using SegWit instead. And now I, I do want to say like this is um, just rolled out now. So a lot of the estimations and things might be a little wonky just because the, the reset of a node is pretty much going to involve the mempool um, having to be flushed out potentially. And so any kind of data feed that's actually going into the Explorer 
that didn't maintain a mempool through a restart is going to kind of throw off some of the estimations, but that should kind of just solve itself and smooth out as it fills in. But I mean, like this, you know, I, I, I got to earn my, my block stream paycheck here, but like, this is really just an awesome thing. Like this, this Explorer is taking privacy into account, Tor usage. One of the few people I might actually trust that when they say they're not logging things, the functionality for support without JavaScript and like all, all of the, the metrics it's providing, like this is like stop using blockchain info when you're going to check your transaction or your address. Use blockstream.info or use OXT or something. Like stop using these explorers ran by companies who are incompetent and very likely just logging all of your private information so i was i, I wasn't aware of this uh, of these things but i just a couple of weeks ago uh they rolled out their tour uh on your onion address for block explorer so I, that's when I, I, I decided to change, uh, well, in Wasabi, we, we showed the coin joins, the last coin joins uh, IDs. So that's when I decided to point point to them instead of Smartbit. I still don't like uh, the the way they, they, they present the information because it's hard, hard for coin joins they, uh, to see it. But that's outside the point. The point is that uh, right now I, I went to some last coin joins and unfortunately transaction not found. <laughs> that's what they, that's what the block explorers say. So so there is a bug there which I actually reported in in GitHub a few days ago and seemed to be resolved. But anyway, so I I went there and what they say to a coin join. This transaction saved 41% on fees by upgrading to native SegWit batch 32. So that's quite nice. They they do this. And the other thing is possibly a coin join transaction. <laughs> so yeah, nice, nice. I, I like like the direction they are going. In fact, in 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 many ways, they are much more advanced than other uh, blockchain explorers. Nice. You're not yep. gonna get a cut from my block stream check by by showing them to. It's my check, Adam. <laughs> oh man, I think that should be uh, split up because yeah, Blockstream just keeps hitting it out of the park with the way that they're moving in the direction of uh you know these uh, federated side chains. But I think this block explorer, yeah, I mean like the uh, addition of just telling people like how much they can save and you know. Like yeah, just adding the privacy features and like uh, we were saying in this last discussion, I don't, I, don't, I didn't mean to write off chain analysis so much. I say the troll box kind of went off. Like it's a constant battle, and it takes uh, guys like Blockstream and you know us like moving the traffic away from guys like uh, Blockchain.info. So um, yeah, just uh, go out there and use uh, these explorers that are actually going to be helping build out Bitcoin the proper way. Mm-hmm. All right, and so next up is uh, something from back in February February 25th that uh, I haven't really seen 
talked about or mentioned anywhere. And I think this is likely due to some issues that were going on with the uh, Bitcoin dev mailing list. But pretty much there was a potential consensus bug in Bitcoin Core 0.13 that could have caused a divergence or divergence in consensus on the network between that client version and all others. And so to, to really kind of understand this, I want to call back to the SPV issue that uh, Sergio Lerner actually um, pointed out last year that we covered on the show uh, regarding kind of a fake extension of the Merkle tree for the contents of a block where you would take the hash um, of an actual transaction as a leaf node in the Merkle tree and then pretty much try to extend that another level below and pretend that it is a, a non-leaf node and try and use that legitimate transactions hash to convince somebody that below it is another transaction that is actually invalid which would be able to trick an SPV node into accepting a, a non-valid payment by actually using a, a Merkle proof from an otherwise valid block. And, you know, this, this was a potential issue, but as, as we went over, the, the costs for actually exploiting this were just absurdly high to the point where in, in the real world, practically, there's no way that that would have been exploited because receiving a payment that was worth enough to expend the energy to use this exploit, somebody would have been fully validating or they're pretty much a complete moron. And so it, it just wasn't really practical to exploit. But this same kind of method in reverse could potentially allow somebody to convince a node that a valid block is invalid by instead of making a, a leaf node look like an internal node and extend to a fake transaction, you could try going to a non-leaf node and convince somebody that that is an invalid transaction. So as opposed to moving down from the bottom of the Merkle tree, you move up into the middle. And really this, this is kind of the same situation in terms of practicality with a full block because you would effectively have to get an entire row of nodes in the Merkle tree to deserialize to the proper format for a transaction, even though they're not valid. But there is a case where with a small block, such as with two transactions, you could actually attempt this doing a, a pretty small amount of work. And I think the, the figures where it was like 22 bytes of work, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, if that's um, an incorrect figure, though, there's actually a write-up that was posted to the mailing list in the show notes. You can check section 3.1. But effectively, when you are doing this, you can attempt to take like a block with two transactions and try to re-serialize or, or 
try to grind it so that you can make an invalid Coinbase transaction that would still map to the Merkle root in the block header. And this is pretty much allows you to just use junk data for all of the areas of the transaction except the, the V in um, size index, the V out size index, and the script sig in terms of size. And so a lot of the, uh, or also the, the length of the, uh, the pub key in the output. And so that in total is just like five bytes, I think, that you would actually have to ensure deserialize to a proper format. And other than that, the rest can be junk. And how this would be exploited is constructing this. I can make this fake block based on a real valid block header with a valid Merkle root and then relay it to your node. And what your node would do is actually check this, this fake distortion of a legitimate block. It would see that it's invalid and it would permanently mark that block header as invalid and refuse to ever assess a, a version that was valid if that was relayed to you or any block that was built on it. And this was um, introduced by uh, Suhas uh, Daftuar in 0.13 and then reverted in 0.14. And so this, to everybody's knowledge, is only applicable to this one version of Bitcoin Core. And the, pretty much the fix was just explicitly setting things up so that a block in this situation, you, your node would still look at the, the second valid version if you were to receive an invalid distorted one first, instead of just permanently marking it invalid and, and never checking or validating anything with that block header and Merkle root again. And so in, in his analysis of this, he scans through the chain and didn't find anything that actually could have exploited this. So nothing in terms of nodes during the, or down the Merkle tree that would deserialize to a valid transaction format. And, you know, it's, it's really kind of funny because it was the, the last episode, I think I was kind of laughing and gloating about how absurd the examples of security vulnerabilities um, that the Bitcoin SV team pointed out in Bitcoin. And then th this was recently, um, at least publicly released, although it was posted earlier because the issues in the mailing list were addressed. And I mean, like these kinds of things are always going to be a potential when you're talking about cryptography. There, There is always going to be, be like just nuanced or very narrow ways that you can attempt to distort things and i mean there's really nothing to do except just continue moving forward and trying to address them as they appear and i mean ultimately like this was never exploited the one case in which it, it, it is practically exploitable has never shown any evidence of happening and as far as a full-sized block it's just impractical to exploit so really, this is a very narrow uh, attack or vulnerability. And now that it's been addressed, I mean, this, this is not really a concern going forward.
Those are my favorite kind of bugs, the ones that are impractical to exploit. And it, yeah, I mean, that's just uh, one of the features there that uh, we see with, you know, Bitcoin Core and that implementation and the ways that, you know, people upgrade. We ran into some issues there. Uh, was it last year with the CVE bug? And, uh, you know, just looking at the way that, that we kind of narrowly passed that margin after everybody started updating. So this one sounds a lot, uh, a lot better than that, where... You know, it just seems so impractical. So that's a good thing. And relegated to just dot one three, that's good. So uh, yeah, that's about it. Adam. Did you have anything to say on this one on this uh, Merkle tree exploit? Yes, that we can barely get right the decentralization with full nodes, and it it looks like in, in with SPV nodes we we have more and more issues coming up, and and and. I saw a shift, not, I'm not sure it's a shift, but in the developer community, people started to, to be more and more vocal coming out against uh, SPV nodes. Uh, it was happening a long time ago, uh, for a long time now because of privacy, but now it's, it's, it's more like about security issues. So I'm, I'm not sure what to, what to think think here can we can we do spv nodes without worrying about a bunch of things all the time i don't know yeah i mean they just the the, the issue i don't think is like spv in the abstract sense it's spv like as implemented by mike hearn relying on nothing but isolated merkle proofs for a single transaction I mean, like, I don't see how this is in any way or really any of these kind of class of like malleating uh, Merkle tree vulnerabilities would affect something using Neutrino, like, for instance, like that's going to be downloading a full block, like you're not going to be able to pull off any of these attacks, manipulating a Merkle tree when that client is grabbing the entire block. Yeah, there is a there is an there's a great distinction when when someone has the full block, then he can verify and validate a lot more things that uh, normal SPV nodes wouldn't be able to. So that's that's a good point, though. Yeah, I mean, like I've seen uh, the one that I'm using lately. I've been messing around with this wallet where it just uh, syncs through a large portion of the headers. Like uh, I think it. It just looks at the headers all the way through the chain instead of like actually grabbing all the blocks. And uh, that one's still like, you know, just like a little bit. You got to trust that. But uh, the whole block, you be sure on that one. I would not use that wallet. Like, honestly, it is infinitely better in my mind to just use something connecting to a single node than using something that's actually using bloom filters to query things from random nodes i mean like that's like nopar was saying earlier that's how a lot of chain analytics companies they'll crawl for things like that and can use that to actually identify your addresses like if you're going to if you're going to use somebody else's database and sacrifice that privacy it's better to just use one person rather than expose yourself to a shit ton of different random entities yeah, I mean, confidentiality is a very old uh, way of doing s security and, and privacy. Uh, we, we never 
tried to do privacy in a decentralized system so what we what we what we had in the beginning was uh, authentication right you authenticate yourself to a server and then we changed to confidentiality and then there is the anonymity stuff and 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 then with bitcoin we came with this pseudonymous mass system where SPV wallets propagate a lot of informations, but other kind of SPV wallets doesn't propagate that much information. So we, we have to figure this all out because we decided that confidentiality, not a good enough way, which is actually a good enough way in practice, uh, but it's not good enough to, to make sure you are not going to, to be de-anonymized. That's that's what anonymity is for. Mm -hmm. All right, so bug beaten, not exploited. Good news. All right, Janine, do we want to beat the uh, the dead horse here and look at the, the stumble down stupidity lane? <laughs> yeah, so where do I begin? Um, on March 4th, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase finally decided to respond to all of the concern and anger about their acquisition of Neutrino, which if you haven't heard by now after, what is it, the third episode that we've talked about it, um, Neutrino is a blockchain analytics company that is uh, run and staffed by, as far as we can tell, mostly hacking team, former hacking team members, uh, particularly upper management and founders of hacking team. So Brian Armstrong posted a statement to the Coinbase blog on March 4th, two days ago, where he said the following, we recently announced the acquisition of Neutrino, a blockchain analytics company. I'd like to share a bit of the backstory on this acquisition and a decision we've made going forward. Our mission as a company is to create an open financial system for the world, blah, 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 blah. Let's skip that marketing part. Until recently, we worked with several outside vendors that provide blockchain analytics, as most exchanges do. However, they didn't support all of the assets we wanted to have on our platform. So we knew at some point that we would need to bring this capability in-house. We examined the players and found that Neutrino had some of the best technology in this area. Notice that even while he was saying, you know, we're going to fire these people, he's still praising the technology that they built. We examined the players and found that Neutrino had some of the best technology in this area and decided to acquire them. Also notice the part where he says that the reason they acquired them was because they had the most altcoins supported by their analytics platform. That was apparently the compelling reason, and we will find out later exactly what those assets are. And he continues, however, we had a gap in our diligence process. While we looked hard at the technology and security of the Neutrino product, we did not properly evaluate everything from the perspective of our mission and values as a crypto company. We took some time to dig further into this over the past week. Maybe because everyone was screaming at you to look at it. And together with the Neutrino team have come to an agreement. Those who previously worked at Hacking Team, despite the fact that they have no current affiliation with Hacking Team, will transition out of Coinbase. This is not an easy decision. Which, what's not easy about it again? 
but their prior work does not does not present a conflict with our or their prior work does present a conflict with our mission. Oh, good to hear. We're thankful to the neutrino team for engaging with us on this outcome. Yeah. So the whole part that's critical of or the critical part of this post is obviously the part that inspired the title of today's episode, which is where he says that they had a gap in their diligence process. That's funny because in the statement that they sent out last week to all of the media organizations who were requesting comment and clarification from them about the acquisition, they said that hacking team, the neutrino former hacking team cleared their their background diligence process. Now he is saying that we had a gap in that. So, you know, a little bit of contradiction there. Um, this obviously has, uh, if you've noticed, has not really done anything to quell uh, the anger and concern because there is another issue, which I will get to. It, well, we've already actually discussed it, which was the um, director of institutional sales um, going on for an interview and saying that the reason they acquired Neutrino was not because they had a compelling altcoin selection uh, so, or compelling selection of altcoin support, but because their previous analytics provider was selling data, client data to outside sources. Now they have since issued a statement to Coindesk saying that, that she misspoke. What does misspoke mean? We don't know. So I guess we'll have to wait a bit more for that to come out. Now, the funniest part is that um, before Brian Armstrong made his statement, uh, Jesse Powell from Kraken actually posted a screenshot of an evaluation that his compliance team had done of various blockchain analysis tools um, based on the screenshot. This was done between November and December 2018. And one of the demos that they saw was for Neutrino. And you can see they list uh, what kind of cryptocurrencies or coins or fork coins that they support. And Neutrino uh, claims to support Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, USD Tether, and Ethereum and Dash. So apparently that was the greatest selection of altcoins that they could find in addition to Bitcoin of the analysis companies that they de got demos from. Unfortunately, uh, Jesse, as he said in the tweet where he did the screenshot, um, they were rejected and were actually the lowest scored out of the demos given because, as you can see in the screenshot, they have a section about possible risks. And it says, Neutrino's founder is also a founder of Hacking Team, an Italian cybersecurity firm that is known to pass information um, to Russian firms closely linked with FSB. Now, of course, that's another element to the whole, you know, uh, supporting uh, or providing technology software to repressive regimes. Russia has not really come up that much, but that connection is super interesting. I don't think I tweeted about it, but if you want to find more about it, you can look at a WikiLeaks tweet that was just made today where they actually linked to the whole hacking team uh, leaked email database if you want to look for the interesting connections to Russia. Um, also, a little side note, if you have heard in the past three days or so that the the likely former provider was either elliptic or chain analysis, and if you think that that came from me, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it didn't. And that was that misunderstanding was due to a very frustrating and annoying situation. 
Um, Ryan Selkis, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but you know, he didn't bother for accuracy with this, so maybe I won't bother with accuracy for his name. Ryan Selkis is the CEO of uh, a platform called Masari, which is supposed to provide curated news and analysis that is related to cryptocurrencies. Um, I am not impressed with the quality of their work because on March 3rd, he published a post that you could not even really call it his content. He claims it was his content, but it's basically just a summary of various other things that other people have done the work to report on. Yeah. Oh, am I losing connection? Yes, but it's good now. Okay, sorry. Um, so if you go to his post, it's still up on Masari. But the problem I had with it is that I have a screenshot of this if you look through my tweets in the last two days. Um, but the post that he made, he basically summarizes things that I've been talking about in the first paragraph. And then the second paragraph is uh, some kind of anonymous source that he talked to who claims that the previous providers were probably elliptic and chain analysis and that the reason Coinbase uh, decided to acquire Neutrino was because it was a privacy improvement uh, in comparison to the services that they were giving. So I have no, I have not had any contact with this source. Um, I did not provide any of that information, but for some reason he thought it was a good idea to put an attribution to me at the bottom of the post, which many people then assumed meant that I had provided all of the information in the post, even though I had only been reporting on the things in the first paragraph. So I was having, you know, people contact me saying, how do you know about this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know where you're getting this from. I finally discover, oh, Ryan published this thing. He tagged me, but he didn't really do it properly. And now I have to worry about whether chain analysis companies will start accusing me of, you know, lying or misreporting things that I had nothing to do with. I was even tagged by the CEO of chain analysis in a, like he tweeted out a response to those allegations of chain analysis being involved. And he tagged my handle in that response. And I was like, okay, I'm done. So I told Ryan, take my handle out of this or fix it so that it is very clear what is attributed to me and what is attributed to this random source that you talk to, which I have no affiliation with, and I don't wanna be responsible for any of their claims. It took him, let's see, he posted this on March 3rd. It took him three days to remove it after multiple requests to do so. Even I think two days ago, he actually responded and said, yes, we will fix it. And it took a further two days. Um, I checked it as of uh, a few hours ago. It has since been fixed, but when I it was not fixed and I had to remind him again it's not fixed take it down so I'm not impressed um, with the quality of the work there and I really don't appreciate being put in a situation where you know I'm in a sensitive position where you know I'm reporting on a very uh, capital wealthy company as well as some very dangerous people so if someone is going to think it's okay to not exactly you know be strict about their attribution policies and imply that I have endorsed some anonymous claims about two companies that I have not reported on um, in terms of whether they were in fact the 
um, previous providers, I really don't appreciate that. So I'm glad that's over. The breaking news, the interesting thing that actually was just published 15 minutes before the show started was that um, we now know how much Coinbase paid for Neutrino. The figure is $13.5 million, and that is based on a contract um, that shows the acquisition terms and how many shares uh, the Neutrino founders and executives have in the company. Um, the legal document was dated February 15th. Um, obviously, there was, uh, you know, obviously discussion before that, and there's a bunch of other dates on it. But um, yeah, we from that document we found out that each of the the main the three main hacking team founders or former hacking team founders have a twenty two percent share in the company, and the rest of the shares are held by a French Italian venture capital firm, um, which uh, we also found was registered in. Um, sorry, a French Italian capital firm that invested um, half a million dollars into the project in April 2017. So they had a prior relationship. So most likely it's not just, you know, a partner. <laughs> it might, it, who knows what that relationship is. Um, but yeah, so you can see some of the figures from the document. I can confirm that. I don't think that they actually link in Bitcoin Magazine to the document, but I can confirm that I've seen it. It's real. Um, so now we know it's just some interesting information. Coinbase gave these people 13.5 million. Now, why is this important? Like the money doesn't really matter, but why is the shares important? Well, if the people that you are trying to transition out of your company own all of the shares in the, I don't know what the, I, it, probably Neutrino has become a subsidiary of Coinbase. If the people you are trying to transition out own the shares of your subsidiary, that makes things a bit more complicated than just firing them, which we kind of suspect, uh, many people suspected from the beginning is like, when you say that you're gonna transition them out, does that mean firing them? Does that mean like you you can't just, they, they don't just relinquish their shares automatically when they get fired. So most likely Coinbase will have to go through a whole legal process to get them to relinquish their shares. Is that going to happen? Um, who who knows? You know, maybe Coinbase will just try to play the silent game and say, well, they're not working in the company, um, but we're still happy to give them money that they will earn, you know, based on the work of a company that they're not involved with anymore. So that should be fun. Interesting development. Yeah, to say the least, I mean, like uh, a giant gap, gapping uh, hole in uh in their diligence is correct. I mean, uh, you know, it's surprising to me, like that they actually changed their position in 12 days. I mean, like, uh, that was something where, I mean, you know, got to take this, uh, small victory for what it was. I mean, to see them, you know, pushing these guys out. I mean, I wish we'd get more details on the win and, you know, who would exactly all those little details on the, you know, the transition on that. But, uh, I was, I was kind of, push back a little bit just saying man i can't believe that it uh it worked in less than two weeks and i mean it's still going on i mean i saw an at coin a delete coinbase account this morning i followed and people are still uh pushing back because you know this has been a long-running problem and uh yeah i mean 
it's just crazy that he still said that Brian still says that this was the uh, best technology and, you know, obviously they want the altcoin support because they're, you know, working big into that and how what still wasn't an easy decision after this huge backlash. And I mean, honestly, it feels like they're uh, kind of becoming like a laughing stock of Silicon Valley out there, you know, playing this altcoin game I've, during this whole delete Coinbase movement. I've seen, you know, little video clips of engineers uh, at Coinbase basically making fun of the company doing little bitcoin cash pizza sales and like nothing actually works and uh you know there's all these little errors in the way that they're trying to work with these alts and uh you know they're gonna try and build out that and they're definitely not in this for the right reason so i imagine this delete coinbase movement is going to continue and uh it's not gonna just end with them saying like oh we're gonna push these guys out like uh we want details we want to know when and What's the deal with this uh, financial situation as far as like, are these guys still going to receive payment? I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was released with the signing of the contract. So I imagine that's kind of irreversible, but how's the rest of it going to play out? And uh, yeah, you know, Ryan Selkis, like, man, come on, get your stuff right. And I don't know what's going on with this Masari platform, but uh, either. But I mean, it just kind of came out of nowhere and just defending coin Coinbase. I mean, like... Uh, you know, not defending it, but it sounds like they're trying to change the narrative. I'm not going to say they're defending them, but like, you know, it, there's been discussion from out of there where it sounds like they're trying to switch up the narrative some sort of way. So, yeah. So, guys, there is a huge smoking gun here and you guys don't seem to realize it um, because I, I've been thinking about this before, but I'm not a lawyer, so I, I, I didn't really uh, care that much. I, I was talking about this before, but, um, but okay, so I, I, try to, I try to ask questions. How do you think uh, Coinbase's previous provider uh, was selling data? What do you think what that means? Um, well, to give an example, I mean, it's like, let's assume that they're telling the truth. Um, I think her exact statement, her exact statement was that the previous provider was selling client data to outside sources. Then when they corrected or made a clarification to Coindesk, they said that we have never sold personally identifiable information to third party blockchain analysis vendors. Now, maybe difference between those two statements but there is a difference one is where she said client data now that could be person identifiable information that could be something else it could be something that they don't legally classify as personally identifiable information but may in fact be because tech companies are notorious for being very inconsistent with how that is defined um so for example there is a blockchain analysis company called CypherTrace which itself is only a blockchain analysis firm, but they are partnered with another company called Identity Mind Global, who does the handling of KY collecting and storing um, KYC related information, personal identifiable information. So you could say that, let's say CypherTrace and Coinbase were partners, and as part of that partnership, because CypherTrace is also partners with Identity Mind, maybe Coinbase also provided client data to identity mind. Now it's true in their statement, they said, we have not provided 
personally identifiable information to a blockchain analysis vendor. That would be CypherTrace. But if they provided it to a different company who is handling the KYC information and compliance, their statement would be true, but they still ended up passing that information along. This is just an example of what could have possibly happened. So th this is how blockchain analysis company works. They build a platform, then they get exchanges. Why, why do exchanges want them? They don't really want, they want your money, not uh, for someone to tell you that you cannot get this money because it's coming from a dirty source. But they want some plausibility towards regulators or wh whoever is going after the exchanges. So they hire blockchain analysis company. They flag one or two transactions, whatever, uh, but the blockchain analysis company <clears throat> incorporates the data that they get from exchanges to their platform and they don't actually and they don't actually sell that data like in, in, in its raw form to other exchanges, but rather they incorporate so they can provide a better service to the other exchange and they incorporate that data too, and they can provide a better service to the other exchange. And this is what Coinbase didn't uh, like. So I, yeah, I, I'm not going to say good guy Coinbase, but they, they kind of uh, recognized it that it's, well, it's, it's, it's not that cool. It's, it's, it's a lot of, that's, that's what they say in their private, privacy terms and conditions that they are not going to give out your data for third parties, but this is how these things work. So the smoking gun here is that this is the business model because if they don't get the, the data that the know your customer data, if the blockchain on this company doesn't have it, then then it's, it's kind of useless. Uh, that you can't just uh, build a blockchain analysis company only based on a uh, blockchain data. That's that's just we are back to the pseudonymous uh, identity system, and and that's you, you can't just do much with it. Uh, you see, so the whole system, how they built their business, uh, seems to be a legal gray ground. And if they, if it's taken away from them, I, I then... gotta say, like the, the key language is they didn't sell the data. They didn't. They claimed that their provider was. So, like that's, and, and they don't say who that provider was selling it to. So, like the 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 triangle I see here is very likely selling or giving direct access to it to law enforcement. Or something along those lines. Like I don't think, like just because they themselves are not financially selling your data, just means that it's not propagating beyond their their prior chain analytics company. So they yeah, don't and... have the data. They incorporate it to their own platform, and they with that data they can provide better services to other exchanges i'm not claiming that it's okay but uh in, in fact well, well this is what's happening yeah and i just want to point out that so far we at the moment we uh, like what is public is that there are five main employees of neutrino there probably are more i mean 
assume I assume that there's more than that. Otherwise, basically, they're losing 80% of the company, like four of those five have to go. There's actually a fourth person in addition to the three people that have been highlighted over the past two weeks. Um, the fifth person is a guy named John Kirtland. And he is, let's say, a big fan of KYC. He literally made a statement in November of last year where he said he was criticizing exchanges for not KYCing every single transaction. He was saying that they should do that and that they will not be in compliance with the law if they don't do that. Now, I disagree with that, but that is what he will be advocating for as a member of Neutrino now that he has been acquired by Coinbase. So that person is going to be in Coinbase making those kinds of statements. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think it's interesting what uh, Nopar is saying about like the way to build out their platform to make it just like that's their model is to keep building this larger database between exchanges to where they could try and, uh, you know, actually start doing some heuristics that they could say, well, this is actually tied to identities we know for sure. But, you know, if there's a... And they are going to sell this Neutrino to other exchanges and they're going to get their data too. <laughs> well, I mean, like, honestly, I was thinking about it and it looks like everybody's fallen in line with these uh, FATF guidelines put out last year, where by the third quarter of 2019, they want every exchange in the G20 G20 countries to be operating in this way of heavy KYC on every side they can of these transactions. So, um, I mean, like, that's just the way it looks with this bill, AB 1489, that was coming out of Colorado, or not out of Colorado, sorry, out of California. And uh, the, it was like a bit license. And uh, the way that they were structuring it, it was like this was sort of the necessary legal structures that you had to take to be compliant to run an exchange. And, uh, you know, it just looks like there's a real effort between a lot of different um, exchanges to try and fall in line with that. And yeah, it looks like Coinbase is kind of leading the charge here in the United States. But uh, I've got hopes that, uh, you know, there's like I'm saying, they're kind of becoming the laughingstock of Silicon Valley. And maybe like, uh, you know, they'll start to see like this was a, a bad move and maybe they'll, you know, hopefully it'll keep running into trouble. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, keep moving on. Um, it's been a heavy topic and I'm sure we'll continue to unfold that. So let's get through um, a couple of uh, updates from within the industry of some new things coming along the way. Uh, you guys remember late last year when everyone lost their marbles at Robinhood for offering a savings account with 3% interest? Well, that language used and uh, program mechanics got regulators up in a roar. So they quickly backpedaled and are still in beta with their banking services. But BlockFi is here with a new savings program that offers 6% interest on Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's a new program called BlockFi Interest Accounts that are backed by regulated and insured custodians Gemini. It looks like they are targeting international investors at an institutional level, especially in the Japanese market. CEO of BlockFi, Zach Prince, says, quote, people get 2% on their savings account here in the U.S. In Japan, it's zero. 6% to investors in Japan is eye-watering. It's something to get really pumped about given the negative rate environment, close quote. Now, users of their platform can start earning interest with a minimum deposit of 1 BTC or 25 ETH. They will get 6% earned interest as well as compounding interest monthly, delivering an annual percentage yield of 6.2%. The yield will be offered monthly paid in 
either of the two cryptocurrencies. The yield provided to these BIA accounts are generated from institutional borrowers. Even though it costs more to lend ETH over BTC, Prince said the decision to provide equal interest rates, quote, made sense. Even though Prince told the block back in December, quote, the rate will fluctuate and be subsidized in effect by our venture investors, close quote. So we'll see how long these uh, interest rates last. And now who are these investors? Obviously, Jim and I, but last year, BlockFi was able to raise funds from the online personal finance company SoFi, the venture capital firm Kinetic Capital, and the Ethereum startup incubator Consensus. So uh, now back in December, Prince told the block they were also thinking about doing a credit card that could provide crypto rewards instead of airline miles. But for now, they could not provide an update on that plan. For now, they are choosing to focus on this uh, savings account program alone. One last thing about the program. Anyone who can access the platform is OK to participate, except those living in New York, Washington and Connecticut, as they are still ineligible due to regulatory issues. All right. So you guys psyched at all about 6% earned interest in not holding your keys? Dude, what the, f like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, this is even more ridiculous than Robinhood. They're openly stating that they're just expecting investors to piss away money and subsidize this. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you're, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, this kind of shit is just nonsensical. Like when you make claims like this, when you try to provide this kind of interest rate on something, you need a sustainable, consistent way to actually maintain that. Or like this is just bullshit and it's going to fall apart. Like, <laughs> yeah, the mechanics of it do seem a little up in the air. And like we've been uh, saying with uh, Quadriga and, you know, all these you know, exchanges, these first generation exchanges and setting up some of these products. It's just like, uh, you know, the way they want things to go, it just uh, looks like it's going to build out another fractional reserve system where people are going to be playing around without their money being there. So, yeah. Any other comment on that before we moved into a little update on BACT? All right. We're going right into it because these news stories are not that interesting, <laughs> but uh, let's get through them. So Starbucks and uh, back just a little update on the back situation as new details come out. We haven't heard much from the story other than the delays for varying reasons. Now, this story first broke back in August of last year, which we covered in episode 119, Ice Latte. At that time, the details were simply about the creation of a physically delivered futures product bought to, brought to us by an alliance between the New York Stock Exchange operator in ICE, Microsoft, and Starbucks. At that time, Vice President of Partnership and Payments Maria Smith said, quote, Starbucks will play a pivotal role in developing practical, trusted, and regulated applications for consumers to convert their digital assets into U.S. dollars for use at Starbucks, close quote. And that and the company is, uh, quote, committed to innovation for expanding payment options, close quote. So, however, shortly after that announcement, Starbucks contradicted these reports and a spokesperson told Vice Media, quote, it is important to clarify that we are not accepting digital assets at Starbucks. Rather, the exchange will convert digital assets like Bitcoin into U.S. dollars, which can be used at Starbucks, close quote. Well, now the Block Crypto reports that the Starbucks will be honoring their deal. In return, the coffee giant has secured a, quote, mutually beneficial agreement, 
which came in the form of a generous offering of equity and shares of back. The percentage is confidential, but the block sources suggest it's disproportionately high given they didn't have they didn't make a cash investment. And uh, a payment expert close to the deal told the block, quote, there's high value from having a brand this level, a brand of this level, especially for relatively new names like Bact, who benefit from the coffee heavyweight support. Close quote. So uh, reports also suggest there's a there's also likely mutual marketing perks in Starbucks. Starbucks upfront investment in back came from their marketing budget. And uh, for now, it appears Starbucks has agreed to allow people to pay in store using BACS software, which will instantly transfer their crypto into fiat. So it looks like Starbucks won't be holding any digital assets in their portfolio, but will be using the BACS software in good faith. So there's a little update. And just to remind everyone, those BACS contracts are supposed to launch sometime in the first half of 2019. So that's just another three months and three weeks. My fingers are crossed. I go through. What do you guys think? Are these uh, contracts going to launch soon? You going to go purchase some coffee with your uh, back software? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that there. It's just a matter of red tape. I have not seen anything that makes me think that this is going to be denied regulatory approval. But <clears throat> as far as buying coffee, no, I don't buy overpriced Starbucks or shit. <laughs> but you know, it, it I makes, don't buy coffee. <laughs> Because you're a teetotaling weirdo. Uh But, um, yeah, I mean, like, this this kind of arrangement, I think, is going to be... You're drinking tea. I don't drink teetotaler. You don't do anything that alters your consciousness because you're a weirdo. So, like, like things like back in this arrangement with Starbucks, it's going to be absolutely necessary going forward for any kind of sizable corporation to accept Bitcoin as a means of payment. Like they need to have the option to dump that immediately for fiat. Otherwise, if they have any kind of sizable volume, they're sitting on huge volatility and huge potential losses. And in a futures market like this, it's the perfect way to structure this because they can put their offers, somebody buys it, and they're locked in. They are getting their money. The person who has the other side of that buying the Bitcoin, that can get juggled around between a number of different buyers, settle. Starbucks's fiat value is locked in. And like honestly, it's also pretty uh, facilitative of industrial investment period because, or institutional investment, sorry. Because like if they can actually drive consumer adoption with a, a major corporation like this to a sizable volume, it will provide liquidity for institutional investors to buy up, which is really going to be one of the big problems going forward in terms of all the big money who wants to dive into this space. Not everybody is going to want to part with their Bitcoin. So where are they going to find those Bitcoins to buy? Well, if you, if you can kickstart prematurely consumer adoption with a, a big corporation like Starbucks to a large scale, there's your liquidity. Starbucks can accept it and pass it to back to where a futures contract is established. They have their profit and their costs locked in without being subject to volatility. 
And the bigger that, that level of consumer adoption grows, the more liquidity that institutional investors have access to. And it's just a, a very well-architected symbiotic relationship. And I mean, without something like this, you, we're not going to see any kind of large-scale retail adoption of Bitcoin by a major corporation for at least a decade or more. Because without something like this, it's just not happening until Bitcoin is large enough and stable enough in terms of volatility that something like Starbucks can just hold Bitcoin and not be at a huge risk at all times of losing a shit ton of money just due to market volatility. So like this is the very multifaceted thing that's constructed in a, in a very good way to be beneficial for all of the different parties involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, you know, I know Janine doesn't like coffee, but I like coffee. I mean, like, you know, if I was uh, messing around, I'd use it. I mean, because every now and again, I get stuck in an airport or something where there's only a Starbucks and there's people buying Starbucks every day and there's Starbucks on like every freaking corner. So, yeah, it is like a good place to, uh, you know, have some people, some people with liquidity moving around some Bitcoins. I mean, that would be a good place. Well, even as Chris says, uh, Starbucks is not a coffee company. It's a dessert company. If you go in there, their coffees are all very sugary and flavored. And then they have tons of desserts on display at the counter. They're not a coffee company. They're a dessert company. Tell that to their logo. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. So, uh, yeah, that's what's going on with back now. What's going on with Monero? Seems like some things are going haywire. Yeah, well, uh, there's really two uh, different issues going on here. Um, so I guess let's start with the first one. This one is actually a pretty bad issue. So... Monero uses a number of different things um, to achieve privacy. They use stealth addresses to obscure where coins are sent. They use confidential transactions to obscure the amounts that are sent. And they use ring signatures to obscure what is actually spent. So th these three things kind of attack multiple angles of privacy leaks here in a very symbiotic way. And so ring CT, the, the combination of uh, ring signatures and confidential transactions has a very serious um, vulnerability here. And effectively when, when a Monero miner uh, constructs a Coinbase transaction, what it does is it, it declares the amount mined in plain text visibly and has a, a null uh, ring CT signature. So it, it's, it's just void. It's not actually accomplishing, obscuring things. And that is pretty much committed to in a way where like everything is mapped out and verified by the network. But the, the code base of Monero would allow a miner 
to create a Coinbase transaction that does not have a null ring CT signature. And so that would be able to be used to pretty much convince another participant in the network that there is a different amount of money locked up in an output than there actually is. And so this could actually be exploited directly on an exchange as a miner by sending them one of these, these invalid Coinbase transactions, which would be recognized, and pretty much deposit non-existent Monero and sell that on the market. And there, there is a way you can deal with this right now by setting a command option to not um, recognize or kind of update these types of Coinbase balances. And there's going to be a patch release soon. But this is a, like this is just fundamentally a huge design fuck up that this is even possible in the first place like this is not actually printing money out of thin air per se but it's being able to convince somebody of that to the point where i could defraud you providing goods and services like i could deposit non-existent money on an exchange and sell that on a market like this it effectively is the exact same thing as being able to print money out of thin air and this was actually identified and patched months ago by a Monero fort or fort called Rio and was not publicly disclosed or disclosed to the Monero developer team when it was patched on this, this fork of Monero um, in, in their words, because of the toxic behavior towards security researchers that the Monero community exhibits whenever they've been approached with different security issues. And he actually cited uh, a few different examples of this, um, a flaw in the crypto note protocol. Um, it's, it's just like, point blank that this person ha has noticed a behavior in the Monero community that is not very receptive of security vulnerabilities. And so the, there's really no indication or notion if this has been exploited in the wild or actually used to defraud anybody. But like this is just, it goes to show that when you start implementing a lot of different complex solutions to actually managing and validating uh, transactions and amounts in a system like this, you create more and more different attack services, places that things can go wrong, ways where behavior can deviate from what you expect. And it's, it's a very big reason why keep it simple, stupid. I mean, it's things like this that make me very hesitant to do something like support confidential transactions or similar techniques on Bitcoin because it, like these have been deployed on other systems for a long time. And there has been quite a, a large amount of issues that have been discovered in that time with these types of techniques. So, I mean, you know, like, uh, no part, like, have you seen anything about this or have anything to say? Yes, these are implementation issues. So I don't think it's fair to, to, to 
compare the Monero developers to the Bitcoin developers. But anyway, it's it's I, I, I'm so sad. I mean, come on, responsible disclosure is not a thing anymore. But not not even that. But this shows this shows how what's the are you working on a privacy technology? Uh, why do you do that? Do you want the future to be more private? Or you just want to to be an ass to your competitors and 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 this seems like that's the latter, right? People are are, are so toxic. They, they, they should just uh, there were bugs in the Bitcoin core system too, but and I, I don't know what to what to say. It's it's sad. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like I get this is just an implementation fuck up, but it's still like the more complex you make the thing you're implementing, the more ways you can fuck it up. And I mean, you know, as far as the disclosure issue, I totally agree with you. Like it's an absolutely irresponsible and immature way to deal with things in this ecosystem. I mean, you just look at Corey Fields and the consensus issue with um, I think it was the SIG hash flag issue that he disclosed to Bcash developers. I mean, I think that that system is an outright scam, but people still have value invested in that. And he was very responsible in the way that he disclosed that, despite the fact that almost all of the people involved in that project are pretty much outright fraudulent in how they represent it to other people. Like, that's how you should act. Okay, uh, but okay. So, so, so the first topic because you you went back to there. It's uh, it's not as complicated as let's say the co how complicated is the implementation of confidential transactions compared to the whole consensus critical Bitcoin code base right now. And we can see that it might be only 1% of the confidential transaction implementation. If we would ever decide to implement it in a proper way, but that's another question. So this complexity thing is such a straw man. I, I don't know what to, what, to, what to say, but yeah, back to the responsible disclosure. It's Corey was, was that's, that's how you do it, right? And this is how you not do it. I I don't feel sorry for people uh, using and holding Monero because I, I would assume they they are aware that they do that that they are moving very fast, and when people are moving very fast, then things are breaking. So I I think no one it's it's not really a Huge surprise for anyone, I think. Yeah, that's where I was just going to say, like, uh, in this, like, a bigger issue, which is, like, uh, the way these privacy coins are implemented is, like, they just leave the door open for hidden inflation and that hitting the network some which way on an exchange. I mean, uh, we saw that recent exploit with uh, Zcash where they're doing, like, a phased-in hard fork to get rid of all the old shielded addresses transactions like anything on the old shielded addresses will be gone in a year just because uh they know that there's a large amount out there that could be 
just sitting there waiting to hit the exchange. And uh, I think that's just another sort of uh, pitfall with the uh, Monero. I mean, I understand. Yeah, it's like, let's, let's fix things. Let's find a way to, you know, bring more privacy. But yeah, like uh, we're saying, there's just, you know, there's always a, a, you know, some sort of externality whenever you start doing that. I, I like, you know, yeah, Bitcoin starts with pseudo anonymity and, you know, builds up from there. And I think that, you know, offers us with the new tools like we got with like Wasabi and, you know, Samurai guys are working on different things with, uh, you know, the Whirlpool and um, those paynums. And I mean, it just seems like privacy is going to build up out, off of Bitcoin. It's just uh, we all got a little anxious and said, like, we need something. And uh, it seems like that's something for a period of time was Monero. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess as far as the next issue, I'm going to use the straw man that I don't think is a straw man in part of my commentary, no part. But I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but there is uh, a security issue with uh, Ledger regarding uh, transacting with Monero with their O.14 client for it, and it's again, this one is not really a lot of details out there and as of last time i checked there's really no concrete details about what is actually causing this but the issue is is pretty much somebody made a transaction and effectively the the change address that it was sent to seems to be uh, an address that is actually not um, recoverable or something you can generate from their mnemonic seed. And so they wound up uh, purportedly losing 1600 Monero. And, you know, this again, this is more, it seems to be a, a wallet implementation screw up and nothing really with the core Monero protocol. But this one is, this kind of issue, I think, is something that Bitcoin itself will eventually be facing, even if we never implement confidential transactions, which I, frankly, at this point, kind of hope we don't. But, you know, there, there's a lot of different complexities in dealing with Monero keys, like the, the generation and use of stealth addresses, the necessity of a blinding key with confidential transactions versus the actual spending key. And their, their recent attempt to create uh, the construct subkeys, um, which if I remember correctly, was actually something to make blinding keys for hiding the amounts uh, deterministic and recoverable. And, you know, the, the, the more complex you make, the, the use of keys and different scripts that are required to actually spend something, like the more ways somebody can screw up implementing software to handle that. And even without Ring CT, like there are things being developed for Bitcoin that not to such a large degree, but to some degree are going to start opening up this this surface of where you can fuck things up. Like where uh, Mast and Taproot, and having more complex, you know, Merkleized spending paths for a script. Like that is going to introduce complexities in, in actually recovering funds. Because if you make a complex script using uh, MAST and using um, Taproot, there's 
going to have to be ways to recover that. We're going to have to start standardizing different types of mass scripts so that there's something that can be deterministically regenerated if you have all of the relevant keys and conditions. We're going to have to start, you know, standardizing how you manage and handle or generate things like hash locks that might be involved in these types of scripts. If you start deviating from standards, wallets are going to have to be able to handle and manage your custom format for a mass script in order to actually be able to recover that. And like these are going to bring more complexity in terms of implementing wallet software, in terms of a user managing the data necessary to be able to spend the, the money that their wallet software is interacting with. And I mean, especially things like Graftroot, like there is going to be no way using Graftroot to back things up in a deterministic way. It's not going to be like uh, the hypothetical standardized mass script where you just have the keys involved and you know which order to put them to regenerate that, that script necessary for the wallet. There is going to be a new script signed by a key and you can't lose it. If you lose it, it's gone. Unless the people who created it and signed it will sign it again if you generate it from scratch. You, like this is going to make wallets and users' interactions with wallets more complicated. And it's just, it's the nature of doing this kind of thing. Like it's not something that you can just brush off and make all of the problems go away. The more features that we build into things, the more complex ways to encumber and spend coins, the more complex that wallets are going to get and the more ways people are going to have to fuck them up. And I mean, this particular issue is, like I said, it's nothing to do with the core protocol. It's nothing to do with an implementation fuck up of the protocol. This is a wallet implementation screw up. And this is something that Bitcoin itself is going to have to start thinking about going forward as well. All right then, yeah, complex, complex, complex. So uh, you know that's where you start leading towards wallet issues. So um, you guys want to run into a real complex situation, or do you guys have any more comment on the Ledger Monero uh, vulnerability? I want to run into a real complex situation. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> let's turn to geopolitics. You guys know we've talked we got to talk about venezuela last we spoke on the subject was back in episode 157 just a few episodes back diamonds delusion where we talked about venezuelan local bitcoin volume surging to all times all-time highs that was in early february when tensions were becoming crystallized with a new political contender entering the ring and maduro's response of closing the border to block incoming aid at that time, the volume surged up 30% with a weekly high of 2,454 Bitcoins or equivalent value of $8.95 million. Well, now it's a month later and we are seeing the local Bitcoin volume stabilizing at around 2,000 Bitcoins per month or around 200 Bitcoins per day. That's a tenfold increase since early January and since the start of 2019, Venezuelans have traded a total of some 16,642 
Bitcoin is worth around $63 million. It's a terrible situation down there, and uh, it's important to keep our eye on things as the situation evolves. Bitcoin is built out to resist author authoritarianism if the people elect to use it. And based on the, these metrics, it appears there is a strong contingent within the country that understands Bitcoin and is electing to use it. Now, Bitcoin is being used for people to maintain their purchasing power during this high time of economic uncertainty. At the same time, Maduro is using every capability he has to main maintain control over this system. In a move that feels warm and fuzzy, Nicolas Maduro has allowed his citizens to receive Bitcoin and Litecoin remittances. But once you look into the details, it's apparent this is meant to capitalize on Venezuelans seeking refuge in the cryptocurrencies. It's a remittance service launched by the Superintendency of Crypto Assets and Related Activities, Sunacrypt, which are the main regulators there in Venezuela. The service is only available on their platform, Patria, which launched the remittances last week. Venezuelan TV reporters said, quote, the system will allow the users to receive a maximum of maximum of cryptocurrency equivalent to 10 petros per month in bolivars. But with the specific approval, users could remit the equivalent in euros of 50 petros. The terms and conditions of the Patria service says, quote, to be a recipient of crypto remittances, the natural person must be registered with the Patria platform, be of legal age and reside in the Bolivar. Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, close quote. So the sender can be outside the country and will be allowed to send Bitcoin or Litecoin under the condition that they use a one-time password and enter their first and last name, date of birth, and country of residence. Then you have to enter the recipient's national identification number and date of birth. The value of the coins will be measured in euros and adjusted every 10 minutes or when required. The value set in bolivars will be determined by the Central Bank of Venezuela. And uh, Petria's site states, quote, the minimum commission amount will be equivalent to of a quarter euro or 28 cents in uh, bolivars for each transaction. The value of the remittance will be deducted by a commission calculated and shown on the platform up to a maximum of 15 percent, close quote. So it looks like Nicolas Maduro recognizes his people are using cryptocurrencies in mass to survive this tumultuous time. And now he's trying to manufacture a way to siphon off this little bit people are using to survive. He's also identifying which of his citizens are using the cryptocurrencies and who's supporting them. Then there's this two-tier system of those who are able to transact in more than 10 petros a month. To me, it looks like he's afraid of the power the Venezuelan people could use these new value systems against him. So he's trying to put everyone in a silo to constrain and capitalize on their growing movement of financial independence. Anyway, that's what's going down in Venezuela. Do you guys have any comment on all this? <laughs> oh, my God, this is great. Well, in order to send money to anybody in Venezuela, you have to dox yourself as a foreign citizen and give us your legal identity. As well, we're going to decide how much money the Venezuelan person gets on the other side of the thing. You know, it's not like there's any kind of market price or it's worth, you know, what, what the market trades it for. No, we decide how much money you get for the cryptocurrency somebody sent you. Why, why would you want to use, you know, the open public network of Bitcoin? And, and actually just be able to use your money freely when you can dox everybody involved in this transaction and watch us fuck you on our government set exchange rate and siphon off a lot of that cryptocurrency. I mean, 
come on, guys, why wouldn't you want to do that instead of just using Bitcoin itself, right? I mean, I think it's good to see that this volume has been surging and people are getting used to the to the Bitcoin network without this. I hopefully, like we're saying, there's a strong contingent there that understands what they're doing. Hopefully they understand this and see it for what it is. I'm afraid there probably will be some people that see this as a way to enter into this new market in an easier barrier of entry because they feel like they're doing it in some legal way, kind of like some stories we talked about earlier. It's just like, but it's building out this platform to just surveil, track, and siphon off. So yeah, it looks pretty ugly down there as far as this remittance service goes. Hopefully people just stick to the Bitcoin network. Oh my God. Janine, uh, no far, you guys got anything to say on this? I mean, just related to Venezuela, there's reports that Venezuela has recently detained a U.S. journalist. So that's great. Sounds like freedom to me. What? You mean all the Democrats who like say that Maduro is totally okay and nothing's wrong down there just had one of their favorite journalists detained because he asked Maduro questions he doesn't like? What? Head wow. explode. Well, apparently it was military intelligence, whatever that means. Damn, things are getting crazy. I even saw, I don't even, this is way off subject. I saw Kim Jong-un take a question from the American press. Like, that was kind of weird to see. Things are getting weird, man. We got to pay attention to this geopolitics. Have you asked me anything from Kim Jong-un? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You guys, you guys think that's weird? The president of Brazil was tweeting, like, porn today. So, like. That's probably the weirdest thing. Woke. The geopolitics scene is complex. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so what else is going on, man? So uh, there has been a recent comment uh, by Abraham C. Matthews, an advocate at the uh, Supreme Court of India, uh, it was pretty much an opinion piece published on uh, moneycontrol.com. And really, it, it was kind of a, a strange response given the, the general development of things in India lately. But he, he pretty much starts off kind of trying to argue that, you know, Bitcoin is is really totally failing as a medium of exchange uh despite its its success as an investment of sorts and attempting to claim that the revolution called cryptocurrency has all but failed in, in his words and then tried to distinguish things uh between a cryptocurrency and a blockchain and, and implying that blockchain is actually experiencing huge growth in legitimate use case by corporations. And he even made one comment that uh, altcoins existing expands the supply of Bitcoin and has the same effect as a central bank printing fresh money off the, the, the press. But it's something very kind of uh, negative he, he's trying to paint bitcoin and and public cryptocurrencies in a very negative way and even kind of pointed to the fact that when the indian government made a lot of progress in stamping out ponzi schemes um 
taking place in India, that cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin became a way for them to continue to operate. Um, where it, regarding fiat gateways and payments, they'd pretty much been smashed on. But at the, the very end, he kind of, in a way, really shifts attitude. And he, he kind of points out that what the Reserve Bank of India has done in banning businesses using cryptocurrency from interacting with the legacy financial system, that's pretty much as far as the central bank can go. And he, he outright says that you, you cannot regulate Bitcoin because they have no way to control it or influence it. And he, he pretty much ends with, like, it, it, sh it should not be made illegal. It should just be left alone. And he, he's pretty much saying that, he, like, we, we should not legitimize this by creating a regulatory framework but we shouldn't make it outright illegal. We should just leave things where they are and let what happens happens. And I, I just find this a very, a very strange attitude. And it's not, it's, it's really not an attitude I can point at any kind of instance of having occurred before uh, as far as how a country deals with Bitcoin. Like it's, we, we've seen countries outright ban it. We've seen countries establish very restrictive regulatory frameworks. We've had countries establish very open and receptive regulatory frameworks. But I haven't seen any country out there that has gone, let us, let's just cut this off from the legacy financial institution and then just leave it alone, not make it illegal, not leave try to establish some regulatory framework, like just, just cut it off and, and then let it be. Liberland, Shinobi, Liberland. That's <laughs> only a country in crazy people's imagination. <laughs> do, do you want to know the best part about Liberland? They have a secret service. Oh my goodness. One of, one of my best friends is the ambassador of Liberland. <laughs> they, say, <laughs> they say they go camping near it because they don't let them in so anyway what <laughs> an ambassador of Liberland goes camping outside of Liberland yeah you know they have their their place but they don't let them in I guess the Serbs uh, it was a long time ago I don't know if they're trying to get in anyway that's <laughs> never mind oh man yeah that sounds a little bit more like Jonestown but you know, it's this, like, this could be a very, if, if this attitude from this advocate is the direction the Indian government goes in, it really could be a totally unique environment for Bitcoin to evolve. In. Like, it, it would effectively be totally cut off from any kind of centralized on ramps or off ramps, but would still be fully legal to use and integrate and build on. And so it would, it would really create a, a situation where there's literally zero option to deal with Bitcoin in terms of getting in or out of it, except decentralized peer-to-peer -peer ways. And like that, I think really 
like obviously it would be very bad for businesses in, in the, the country it would create a lot of frictions and hassles as they they adjust they start moving over like some exchanges already have but like really i think that if if this is where they go this could wind up being very positive in a strange way because all of the 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 on-ramps the off-ramps that would be built in, in a, a regulatory or a legal landscape like this would be decentralized they would be things that could not be shut down and the people would start building on it in, in a way that a lot of people aren't all across the rest of the world in a way that is truly decentralized censorship resistant like using bitcoin as it's really supposed to be used and i think this would be just a very interesting thing to see play out because it, it would be a place where bitcoin is allowed like you can build on it people can use it but it's not going to be capable of symbiotically attaching to the legacy financial system like it is in places like europe or america or japan and like that would be very interesting to see how that evolved. For sure, man. And India, like, talk about the network effects there on the ground where there's just, like, generations of families and, like, neighbors that know each other and they've already built in these, like, little store value systems with their jewelry. Like, it would be real interesting to see, like, that sort of build out like that to where, you know, it definitely creates a friction for the business, but it could help build out Bitcoin in a better way to where, you know, we could avoid all these sort of uh, silos where people just sort of like come under the influence of just, you know, the large amount of data set they have and the large amount of money being thrown at them to try and acquire that. So, uh, yeah, let's go right into this next one that's hopefully going to push this in more into a reality. So it looks like Bahrain is trying to seduce the fledging fintech arena of India to move to their country. The Economic Times reports that in a bid to promote Bahrain as a financial tech hub, the Middle Eastern country is seeking participation from Indian firms to help grow their ecosystem. Believe it or not, the financial service sector is the second biggest contributor to GDP, second only to oil and gas there in Bahrain. Now, the investment and promotion arm of Bahrain called the EDB or Economic Development Board is set to provide crypto businesses with a wide range of resources, including proper banking solutions and practical regulatory frameworks to support growth and innovation. Senior manager at the EDB, Dalal Bahush, says, quote, the central bank of Bahrain has put in the right ecosystem to support growth and innovation. We have seen different new, different new regulations coming out recently to support open banking, crypto asset trade regulation, and draft regulation on robo-advisory, close quote. Bahrain is trying to act as the testbed for innovation of the financial services sector, saying they offer advantages of low cost to do business and a sandbox approach to accelerate development. Dalal says some Indian companies have already applied to participate in the sandbox. Now the EDB is supposed to have a roadshow road show in Mumbai later this year to attract even more fintech companies out of India. They also signed an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with the Indian state government of Maharashtra. <laughs> I think I said that right. Maharashtra. 
sorry guys, to provide a framework for cooperation to promote fintech in their respective markets. So it looks like Bahrain is putting uh, the pinch on India to make a move on this, like, uh, you know, let's figure out what to do. But uh, I mean, it, you know, just the way these stories have been, we've been, you know, discussing them today, it just sounds like, yeah, you know, they're trying to build this, uh, let's see what they said, a uh, open crypto asset trading platform and trying to build the proper regulatory framework. And I mean, like Bahrain just doesn't ring out like one of these countries like Malta or, you know, one of these places where it seems like they're kind of building out a favorable regulatory framework for privacy and uh, that sort of thing. Like I would imagine if companies from India did go over there, they would probably be building out another one of these silos of information. But uh, nevertheless, it does look like you know, there's some pieces moving there on the chessboard when it comes to India trying to come up with the way to regulate this uh, this industry. And it looks like Bahrain's trying to play a part in that. So any you guys have any comment on this, uh, this little tidbit of the story? Yeah, I mean, like this would, like this kind of dynamic really flourishing would allow businesses right now in India with more conventional centralized systems to expand somewhere else and not fail. And if like they start moving in, in the direction that this advocate from the court wanted to, like they would be free to continue building more distributed decentralized systems in India, but still have revenue and money from conventional systems or businesses in Bahrain to actually help fund that. I mean, like, yeah, the, these two things very well could wind up being very synergistic with each other. Yeah, I guess we could see, you know, some more of these uh, companies that want to keep building out, you know, like uh, Unocoin or anything, those, those companies, they can move over there to incorporate and uh, maybe they could start working on building out better peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure there in India. I mean, it's interesting to say the least. We're going to have to keep following it. Janine, no par, any, any sense to toss in to the penny tray? You never know when, where, what's happening. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't guess that Amir Taki is going to go to the Middle East because he read on the internet that there is the anarchist society is evolving and building out. So who knows, maybe it's India. Mm -hmm. I, know, I guess any last things before we jump into the next one? Yeah, let's get into it. All righty. Well, I'm going to start tooting my own horn. Uh, you, you're still on muted, Rick. All right. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of development going on in the Sichuan uh, province in China right now. Uh, apparently, there is a huge rush of miners attempting to establish uh, contracts with farms in Sichuan and Yuan, which are two provinces with a very large amount of hydroelectric infrastructure, um, particularly a lot of plants that aren't actually plugged into the national power grid. And given that summer is coming up again with the, the rainy season, a lot of the um, 
the power that kind of dried out uh, during the winter is going to be coming back. And by the end of March, they are going to start finalizing electricity prices, um, which are kind of set seasonally during the, the rainy season. And a lot of miners are looking to move away from the Xinjiang province and in, uh, inner Mongolia, where most of the, the power is fossil fuels. And the, the price is around five cents per kilowatt hour. Whereas in Sichuan, during the rainy season, it's usually around three cents a kilowatt hour. And so for large scale mining operations, I mean, those small margins can make a huge difference in terms of your profitability. And, you know, this is also something I think that is not really going to help a lot of big manufacturers like Bitmain um, if the market starts turning around. I mean, like another huge dynamic kind of shifting in, in the ecosystem in China is most people are buying their equipment secondhand and used. I mean, you, you can get uh, S9s in bulk for like 100 to $200 a piece. Or I'm, I'm sorry, not in bulk, individually. And in bulk, around 300 through wholesalers, while Bitmain on their, their site is, is selling them for around $450. So you, you can acquire used mining equipment for up to a quarter of the price of buying it new from Bitmain. And given the, the bear market and the, the power drying up in cheap areas, you know, as the, the summer ended last year, this has really flooded the market in terms of secondhand mining equipment. And this is what a lot of miners are moving towards. Like it's, it's at the point where a single farm in the, the Sichuan province that has uh, hosting slots for 200,000 machines is dealing with a total demand of, of mining farms and individual operators approaching them of over a million. So like there's literally five times the demand for their hosting supply available right now. And, you know, given this huge uptick in demand and the potential of continued price movement up, like this is really going to work in the favor of people operating the, these farm sites in these areas. But given the fact that most of the people moving in are coming with pre-existing equipment, or buying used equipment, like this is not really going to help Bitmain or other manufacturers in the way that big market movements have in the past. Because I can just go get the same thing for a quarter of the price used and make my, my return on investment that much faster. And I mean, even like some of the farms that are dealing with this big surge in, in demand, some of them are even planning on buying massive amounts of their own equipment from secondhand markets because a lot of them actually sign uh, contractual deals for the entire summer to buy a certain amount of power from hydro plants with surplus electricity. So even if they, they don't actually fill all, all of their hosting um, slots with other people's equipment, they're still going to have to pay for that electricity. So they're scooping up 
used mining equipment to be able to actually utilize that electricity if there are not other people who will take that supply. Like well, one um, mining operation is buying 20,000 used ASICs to mine themselves. And I mean, this is like still obviously a gamble, like any kind of massive mining investment is if the price does not start moving up and crosses down below 3000, this is going to result in miners having to shut down their operations again. But the whole like dynamic here is just kind of showing like how how fluid and adaptable the mining ecosystem can be and just how rapidly it's changing. And I mean, like, I think that this, this dynamic with secondhand equipment and just the, the kind of fallout from the, the, the bear market we've gone through in the last year is really just kind of proving my point that in the long-term consumer facing ASIC manufacturers aren't really a sustainable business because they're all hurting bad now. Bitmain, the biggest one, is hurting the worst out of all of them. But any kind of, you know, short-term reinvestment into the mining ecosystem because of market changes or changes in the availability of electricity, they're not really going to see the benefit from it because people are not buying their equipment from them new. They're buying it from old miners who've stopped mining or sold their old equipment. And it's just like this is... Like this is not going to just be the, the same thing that happened the last time we had a massive bear market where the price swinging up rescues Bitmain at the last minute. Like the, this is not the same landscape. Yeah, honestly, I was looking at this story and just thinking about, well, this is, you know, this is whenever it comes to people talking about like, you know, where is the price at and what's it? looking like and you know all this stuff i said stories like these where i think like okay well maybe we are kind of found the bottom because uh you know it looks like people are starting to take those risks again and uh purchase up those uh, large amounts of uh resold units and trying to set up these new contracts for cheap electricity and i mean this looks like uh you know there's at least a, a large amount of people that seem to think that this is where they need to re-enter and yeah i mean you know, it's uh, interesting to see, like, you know, this is like a bunch of resold equipment that's for cheap on the market because, I mean, Bitmain, you know, they kind of made that bad investment. And, you know, <laughs> John can't ca cash out all his Bcash to buy back these, uh, you know, these electricity contracts and start mining again. And, um, you know, we're starting to see that kind of, uh, you know, further decentralize the amount of people that are mining with this old equipment. And, yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely interesting like market dynamics as far as uh, something that's going on that kind of shows like people's uh, sentiment on the market at the time. Okay, yeah, this next one's pretty heavy, but let's get into it. All right, so Adam, Jack did not hit the road. He came back. What's up with that? Oh, I, I was actually, did you guys saw, saw the interview? With mm -hmm. Joe and yep. Jack back, back to Joe Rogan. Yeah, I watched it live yesterday. All right. So just just a bit of a context. Jack is the CEO of Twitter, and Joe Rogan is uh, well. He's hosting a podcast, and actually, 
Bitcoiners should be uh, familiar with both of them because it was a huge thing back then when Andreas Antonopoulos went to Joe Rogan and Jack just went to Stefan Liviera's podcast uh, where other stars like uh, Shinobi Monkey went before. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the thing is that uh, it was it was all about. It was so so sad. Like the, the only question was how can we police people's behavior, and I didn't really like that. But what I really wanted to talk about is that maybe some kind of decentralized Twitter is coming to Wasabi. Um, but because it's a obvious extension, Wasabi Wallet, it's an obvious extension of uh, ideas. Uh, and the basic idea is that you we just expose a Tor Onion endpoint and then you can add your friends through the Tor Onion endpoint and then you can communicate with them uh, this uh, in a peer-to-peer uh, encrypted manner. And the, the reason why we want this is just simply to do pay to endpoint and merge avoidance sending to each other. So this is this is the basic, but okay, if, if we do this, then why not just add the freaking chat client where you can just chat with the other person? Like the chat only is being kept in the memory, so it's just safe and doesn't even get in, in the the disk. So that would be the next next thing uh snapchat like experience but then if you think it's further then you could just have a wall too and only your your wall would be only propagated to your friends and your friends would be propagating further your wall or something like that and this would only live until people are online right so if if you go offline and you don't have a friend then no one's gonna propagate where there no one's gonna keep your feet or or whatever so that would be an interesting thing and i'm not not trying to build this but this is kind of just a basic evolution of a small idea like exposing a tor endpoint what do you think of that no para i just thought of a perfect name if you build that kind of app it should go what's up <laughs> nice <laughs> see, see like i think i mean like i would definitely like to see like some kind of social media architected like that but it's like the the key points are like that well one obviously that has nothing to do with the fucking blockchain so um i, I don't know what the fuck tim pool and dorsey are smoking talking about blockchain twitter but it's the the architecture is is good for privacy and it's good for ephemeralism so like there there's very positive aspects there but like part of the core reason that people use something like twitter is stuff stays there is i can go back and respond to something i wasn't there for that i didn't see i can go back and see what you've said for a long chunk of time back in the past and something like that is just absolutely not scalable 
in the the type of pure peer-to-peer architecture you're talking about there and i mean like i think like what you're describing it's something that would be very valuable and very useful but it's ultimately like two completely different types of products for two completely different types of, of needs or use cases and i think something like that could very much take off and become popular but i don't ever think it would displace something like twitter because it, it doesn't fill the same kinds of needs or wants from people that twitter does yeah that's right i don't even want to go that way it's really just uh basic evolution of exposing two anonymous endpoints to 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 each other but why did no one did that before like it's 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 so basic if you have a chat client then uh, all right well i think it's just ultimately that like people like like the the staticness of twitter they like that things stay there and yeah that's i don't think that twitter is about it's just no no one cares about what's what happened like uh, five years ago those things are just data sitting there wait are, are you sure because i mean just to bring up the coinbase stuff again roger ver was tweeting about katherine hahn joining coinbase and being angry about it, which happened in the summer of 2017. He's like two years behind. I think he would care. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's not the basic use case. That's might be your use case because you are very diligent in digging up information and archiving it <laughs> uh, to, to later. You may, maybe you can use that. But the thing is that if you tweet something and it's not three three people are not if a bunch of people are not going to like it right away then then it's pretty much forgotten it's it just uh, it's just dead dead anymore it's 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 a hype platform right you you put up some some information which might be valuable and some people might pick it up it's really just all about the moment but yeah okay uh anyway I just wanted to share this idea. We can get back to 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 Jack and Roger, Roger, Roger Vernet, Roger, Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, I like, the conversation. <laughs> I like the idea of just like a different way to create these communication platforms, and I think that's uh, one of the biggest things that I saw from that discussion was just like how it looks like you know these guys are a little daunted by the responsibility they behold because they were these like large network effect of people that are communicating and controlling public discourse are like, you know, this is where they're highly involved in politics and journalism and, but all these other different areas. And it seemed like it was just kind of upsetting to see like here, like, you know, they just, I mean, I get it. They're like whole number one goal is like, they were saying, Jack kept repeating himself saying like, this was all about creating equal access to a platform where anyone can speak. But in doing so, they also have this goal of making sure they protect personal safety. And, you know, it's just this like, it's this incorporated company in Silicon Valley that 
governs on a global scale their platform that overlooks, you know, Americans' rights to free speech because, you know, there's like this question of secure of people's personal safety. And I, I don't know, to me, it's just like uh, it's one of these things that's kind of aggravating where you see these guys in Silicon Valley not even recognizing they're standing on the foots of giants to engineer these platforms. Like if you weren't in the United States where there is free speech, you wouldn't be able to build these platforms. And to you to just like, you know, push that aside because you think you know better and that it's more important to protect per people's personal safety. I think that's a misunderstanding of people and communication. I mean, there has to be feedback. If someone says something shitty and you get a shitty response, you should take that for what it is. I mean, you cannot protect people all the time. That's like a it just seems like that's a it's an you can't do that. And I don't know. It just it got aggravating to me, and I kind of got Tim Pool's points a lot on the discussion to where it just looks like we're on two different wavelengths as far as people that want to build out a platform for the global communication network that honors on a UN platform as far as like a right to speak, or you know, in the United States, and uh, you know, actually having a right to free speech. So, yeah, it's a it was a heavy discussion, honestly. Clearly, so I, the solution is government regulation so that the government is the one who decides what you can't say. <laughs> no, Shinobi, I mean, watching the Joe Rogan interview, it's, it's pretty clear for me that you are next. You are going to be banned from Twitter for life next. It's, uh, nope. it's a matter of time. <laughs> nope. I, I, think, I think I figured out how to twist the algorithms around so that I can call people a retard as much as I want and, and they don't they don't flag it. I but would know, and I'm going to report you. <laughs> You're a dickhead then. Okay, just kidding. But Speaking of messaging platforms. Yeah. Did you uh, have that tweet? Uh, yeah, Shinobi wants to show it. Um, so basically, the Facebook thing. It's actually the CNET thing, but yeah, it's the Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. So hold on. final thoughts time incoming. This one bleeds into the discussion. So Facebook, or should I say, Mark Sugar Mountain? Um, just announced that they're going to be implementing more encryption across their messaging services. Now, before you get excited, you should know this is not um, this is not necessarily any kind of technical intelligence or expertise on his part. It's more to do with the fact that um, they. I've seen a few people comment that they suspect he's doing this because Facebook is going to get increasingly pressured to limit uh, the amount of data sharing that they're doing, or should I say data leaking across their platform. And so if they implement encrypted services, then they'll be like, oh, look, security, we fixed everything now. It's okay. Shit, Zuckerberg yeah. was watching the digest, and this is how long it took for him to steal my idea. I can't believe it. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, I think it came out before you talked about that. So, unless he was reading your mind. <laughs> he has a time machine. 
Well, I wrote it down to my notepad. So. Oh, well, so to be fair, I mean, apparently Facebook knows about various things going on in your life that most other people in your life don't know. So maybe, maybe Facebook is reading your thoughts. Well, it looks yeah, like in my messages, but he doesn't answer any of my Facebook messages, though. Well, I mean, like, it's just, uh, you know, I saw this tweet from, uh, you know, Junseth this morning where he was talking about this uh, podcast and he's like, and he makes a good point. And I heard this in the discussion where uh, Jack refers to Facebook, Google and Apple as his peer companies. And like, you know, there's this, you know, everybody's just doing this thing as far as like uh, trying to create this way of small executives governing people's speech and the way that goes and like these are all done through these companies that are not competitors they're peers but maybe you know zuckerberg saw that and was like you know maybe we can make a move on twitter by implementing some sort of encrypted messaging system or who knows but it definitely is one of those things where i'd like to see at least uh people in silicon valley get on the same page about at least privacy and those discussions and the way they go and it would be nice if they uh you know if they would work towards I don't know. It's you hard know, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing to say you want free speech, but you also want to work in every country in the world. It's a, it's a hard one. It's possible that Zuckerberg just, just didn't get enough information out of people's private messaging. So he's just, he's just, okay, fuck that. Let's make it encrypted. I don't care about any of that because Congress is all the time asking for more and I don't want to, I just say it's encrypted so I don't have access to it. Which well, I, I mean, keep in mind, everybody, when he says encrypted services, that doesn't mean like Facebook won't be able to, I mean, I would suspect that it may be the case that that doesn't mean that Facebook won't be able to see your messages. That's end-to-end -end encryption. But if they just say encrypted services, I mean, that means they could still have a key, like, that doesn't mean that they're actually giving anything up. It just means that it might be a bit harder for anyone else to access it. True. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a heavy, if anybody hadn't seen that podcast, you know, it's a good uh, view just to sort of watch and see what's going on with Twitter's terms of service and the way that they see this platform being built out. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a heavy podcast, but if you haven't seen it, it's worth a watch. All righty, and on that note, final thoughts. All right, me. Me? Oh yes. Um, yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, yeah. So big things going on in terms of uh, the case with WikiLeaks, and uh, Chelsea Manning has now become involved because she was subpoenaed. And there was a lot of really kind of nonsensical speculation about what is she going to be asked about? And of course, if anyone bothered to look at the subpoena document, they would notice that it has the case number from the WikiLeaks case, which was published several years ago in a documentary. We know what the case number is, and that was on her subpoena, which means we know exactly what she's going to be asked about. Um, because that case was related to stuff way, 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 way before 2016, just like a bunch of us expected. I was personally called an idiot by Marcy Wheeler. Congratulations, Marcy. You're now being shown for uh, uh, the, I don't know, 
you want to deny stuff that's very plainly obvious to a bunch of people. Um, but yeah, so Chelsea was subpoenaed. She went, she had her second day at a Virginia court today. Um, apparently today it was a sealed uh, hearing or sealed meeting. So we have no idea what happened in there. But most likely she's basically been fighting to not be part of the grand jury process. Um, and it looks like, I mean, most likely to, since the judge is such a terrible biased person, that's probably not how it's going to end. So she's probably going to have to testify in the grand jury against WikiLeaks or that the the grand jury will be against WikiLeaks. I don't know if she will testify against them, but she will be forced to testify most likely. All right, Rick, you is up. Yeah, I just uh, want to say hope everything goes well with that WikiLeaks. But this is, uh, you know, if you guys are looking for some entertainment, we got lucky, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, or just yesterday, actually, uh, we got Dan Darkpill coming back from the grave. Like, he kind of disappeared, and we're wondering what happened, but he came back with flying colors, man. He's been ripping apart Coinbase or Conbase on all this crap that's been going on with Neutrino. I just saw a hysterical one. What did he say right here? He said, uh, he said, Coinbase has finally located the gap in their due diligence. It was between Brian Armstrong's ears. But um yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's great, man. It's good to see him back. Yeah, and in case he's listening, I appreciate being given the Dan Dark Pill Award for best Twitter thread <laughs> or whatever that was. Boom. You earned it. All right, Nopara, cough up the final thought. I just want to bring the conversation to a less funny topic now. That's uh, to shield Wasabi a little bit because things are going great, ex extremely well. We didn't have a month. We didn't uh, grow our user base. Every 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 month, there are more and more mixes, and 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 it's awesome. And and I just want to say. Uh, Quick thank you to to the digest audience because I think they were the first ones who started to use Wasabi and I remember we were we were trying to do one round a day and we were so happy when it when it was two rounds already <laughs> and 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 that's when 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 the digest guys are very using it and and without without that in in that that one two months first one and two months without them it it would have it would have failed but instead it it just going so strongly and yeah bitcoin privacy is improving from now on we are not gonna stop thanks Fucking a. yay oh yeah man right. it's been awesome to see that develop all right and my final thought is a deadly serious tweet of mine. This is more serious than anything Nopara just said. This is a call to action for Bitcoiners. This is your chance to take device testing to the limit, to go somewhere even I won't go, to blaze a trail into the frontier. So who is going to eat an open dime and see if it still works when they shit it out? Where are you at, Rodolfo? You just, you just ruined the moment. <laughs> Who's doing it? Somebody better do it before we go on air for the next episode.
I believe Dan. I believe Dan said that Mark Carpellis already demonstrated it with a PC. Well, that's not an open dime. So somebody get on it. I expect a report by next Sunday. And on that note, we'll catch you guys then. Later, everyone.